Hey guys, this is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. I'm joined, per the usual, by my lovely sister. Surprise, it's Tessa King. <laughs> Today, I have a riveting story and a shout out to our Australian listeners, who we are very happy to have supporting us by listening to our ramblings. Yeah, it's like 5%, guys. Good job. We yeah, love you. That's awesome. Mate. thanks australia this is a shout out for you today with our story because it takes place in australia wow yeah crikey (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there's some eye rolling going on right now i didn't say anything about shrimp on a on the barbie so okay so today i have a story of survival that's quite impressive and its hero is ricky mcgee a 35-year-old man that is trying to sort his life out the best way he knows how when he takes a job in a new town In the process of relocating to the community in January of 2006, he stops on an isolated road to help out some fellow travelers. He ends up drugged and buried in a partial grave in the middle of the desert. Today, my resources come from material from The Guardian, Off the Grid News, and from Mickey's book, Left for Dead, How I Survived 71 Days Lost in the Bush. Now, before we get started today, I have a challenge for you. I want you to just think while I'm telling you this story about one most important thing that you would bring if you knew you were going to be stuck in the desert for 71 days and then post it to our Facebook page and we'll share some of those things in an upcoming episode. Just a little something fun to do. Ricky McGee is an Australian who was born in 1970 in Gippsland, Victoria. His parents had a dairy farm. He lived there with his family for the first five years of his life with his parents and three young sisters, Tracy, Tina, and Vicky. He describes his life as a young child as always being in his dad's shadow. It sounds like he loved living on the farm as a young child. The family moved to Melbourne after they sold their dairy farm, and they moved to a suburb called Sunshine. Sunshine? How nice. Mm Mm-hmm. It wasn't as sunny as it sounds, though. Mm. His dad started some shift work and started spending more and more time at the pubs after work. Womp womp. Yeah, so this set off some rough times at home. His parents' relationship began to crumble, and his mother moved to a nearby suburb with the kids. After about six months of the separation, his dad actually committed suicide. Oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. And so Ricky was only seven years old when this happened. And he all of a sudden was the man of the house, and he felt this responsibility to his sisters and his mother. He had kind of a rough and tumble adolescence with some brawls with fellow students and some strong distaste for his mother's subsequent choices in men. In his late teen years, he stopped communicating with his mother altogether, and he didn't speak with her for 10 full years. Oh, my gosh. And also, he lost contact with his siblings aside from his sister, Tina, but he did eventually start talking to his mother, but... um, Not for very long before the time of which our story takes place. As an adult, Ricky's resume included a variety of positions. He worked as a doorman at a bar. He was an electrician. He sold prawn. He sold carpet. At one point, he started a landscaping business. And it doesn't sound like that lasted very long. It's like most of his jobs were pretty independent type positions. You know, not the type where anyone is breathing down your neck all day. He later worked as a bailiff, and the other thing is he had a little bit of um, problems with the law, and he didn't end up in jail for fighting and some drug offenses. 
So, but that was all about eight years before this story takes place. So it sounds like he was trying to sort himself out. He's got a lot going on. Yeah, he's got a lot going on. I think, I think his background and his dad's suicide really impacted a lot of things that were going on in his young life. For sure. So he resided in Queensland when the story takes place. In January 2006, during the rain season, he got a new job to further expand on his CV, and the offer was to work for a government department in Port Hedland, Western Australia. He mentioned a relationship with a woman who was living there, and that kind of motivated him to go there for a new start. He decided he had to take the job and was traveling en route on a route that he had traveled many times before in the past. It's a long drive on the Brentine Highway, and much of the travel was over a desert track crossing the outback of the Northern Territory. And he drove a Mitsubishi Challenger. Is this relevant or just a cool detail? It's just a cool detail. Okay. Everybody wants one of those. (laughs) So the Brentine Highway is a 581-kilometer track, and it's a single-lane road with a few double-lane sections in the Northern Territory and Western Australia. The Northern Territory of Australia is northern and central. Its borders are Western Australia to the west, South Australia to the south, and Queensland to the east, which is the location McGee was traveling from. So you're saying Southern Australia is in the south? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Absolutely named. (laughs) Yes. Good job, guys. So he's in the desert, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's really dry, but one thing that was mentioned is that there wasn't a lot of traffic on this road at this time of year because it was the rain season. And so since a lot of it isn't paved, it's really muddy, and it would be really easy to get stuck if you were out there when it rained. Yeah, that sounds not great. Yep. And you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, Ricky stopped at an Aboriginal town called Kalkaringi to fuel up for the last time before the last portion of his trip. It was around lunchtime when he pulled in, and he opened a rum and coke in a can from his car refrigerator, which is called an esky, which is not Ooh. something I'd ever heard of before, but it sounds that cool. an Australian thing? It must be. Please tell us. So he says in his book that he was drinking cans of rum and coke, and on the third can, as he's driving along, he sees a group of stranded travelers surrounding a vehicle, a broken down Kingswood. Another detail there for you. I don't know what that is. It's a type of vehicle. Well, yeah, I got you there, but (laughs) thank you. You used some deductive reasoning to put that together. I thought it was like a donkey or something. (laughs) (laughs) So since it's, again, since it's the rainy season, Ricky sees these people broken down on the side of the road or out out of petrol or fuel and thinks, I may be the last person that these people actually see out here. They're kind yeah, of stranded. Yeah, he's just being nice. Yeah, he thinks that he should be probably careful about stopping for these men. So he pulls over to safe distance and he beckons for them to come over. And at this point, he has all of the doors locked aside from the driver's side. He also said that he had a machete under the driver's seat, quote, in case things ever turn nasty. As you do. As you do. That's my multi-tool. Yeah, exactly. You probably could break a window in case of emergency if you went into If you had to, yeah. yeah. I just hope it has a cover on it, like some kind of shield. So the person that approached the vehicle was 20-something-year-old man. He looked pretty non-threatening, and he told Ricky that they had run out of fuel and needed a ride to Halls Creek. So Ricky, at that point, didn't think about the fact that this person didn't ask him to go to Kalgaringi, which is a shorter distance, or 
ask him whether or not he had extra fuel. It just seemed to indicate that this person he picked up was not of European descent, so maybe an Aboriginal. So Ricky told this person he would give him a ride, and the guy hopped in the car. So once they're on the road, Ricky indicates to the passenger that he should grab a drink from the Esky. And Ricky had one, and the passenger grabbed him another one. So within a few drinks of the second beverage, the second one, the one that the passenger pulled out of the Esky, he starts to feel out of it. He didn't know what was going on. His vision was altered, and things were just not normal. He kept on driving, but he became more and more fatigued while his passenger kept on drinking. And he didn't remember really much after that. So it's like he's been drugged. Yeah, that's what he was speculating. So at this point, that drink was number five. Yeah, so either way, it's (laughs) probably not your best idea. No. I don't know how things go in the outback, but (laughs) probably not a good idea anywhere to drink five rum and cokes while you're driving. Probably not. (laughs) He reports some memory of coming back to you and having some interaction with the carjackers. They gave him water and he was trying to figure out what they wanted. They were the original three plus one female. No matter the how, he ended up confused and blacked out recovering a few hours later. They left him after who knows how long taking his shoes, leaving the money in his pocket, a mere $12.30, along with his keys. So they just dumped him. Yeah. But before that, he had mentioned that when he came to and he was in the passenger seat of the vehicle, that he popped into the driver's seat and he drove careening through the desert with one of these guys in the back seat of his car. I, I don't I don't really understand this the situation. Timeline, yeah. Maybe? So then he ends up driving it into a muddy, soft patch all the way up to the axles. So no one was able to drive it at that point, which would make sense. The why he would have the keys in his pocket. Yeah. And I was also just thinking it's odd for him to wake up in the passenger seat because if he had been drugged or kind of out of it, it seems really dangerous. I don't know how they would have switched him to the passenger seat unless he was out of it and they convinced him to put the car in park. Yeah, who knows? It's weird. <laughs> I mean, he was drugged or really drunk or a combination or a combo. of both. Yeah. So when he came to again, he was in a shallow grave slash hole with a plastic over his body and some rocks and debris on top. He was on his stomach, and the first thing he could smell was dirt. And he was lying on his arms. Oh, weird. And he was awoken by dingoes that were scraping on the tarp. Oh, weird. He heard a sniffing sound. So dingoes, which I'm sure you know, are a lineage of dogs that live in Australia. And they're lean and muscular, and they have both speed and stamina. The dingo is regarded as a feral dog because it descended from domesticated ancestors. Apparently, dingoes are generally not interested in conflict with humans. And I read that it's most dangerous to feed a wild dingo on Fraser Island. It's a place that people go specifically to see dingoes. And usually conflicts and interactions with humans are not fatal. Um, Fortunately for Ricky, he was able to scatter the aggressive crowd of dingoes with a few stones. Most likely they weren't there to eat him anyway, just checking it out. Yeah, they were probably just curious. So after dealing with the dingoes, he was clearly confused about what was going on, and he stood up to look around, which is when he, of course, noticed he didn't have his shoes and that it was really rocky. And that he was in a grave, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) 
and his ankle was bothering him. In the book, he mentioned that he had an ankle injury and he hadn't stood with the full weight of his body on his ankle without a brace in two years. So he first starts looking for the car. He's like, where the heck is it? And he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't see any familiar points of reference. And he climbs up into a tree to get his bearings. And he knew that he was seeing an entirely different landscape than one he had seen in the past. He has no idea where he is. He has no idea where he is. He's lost. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And he's hung over. A bad combo. And he has no water. And he just woke up in a grave. Yeah. With no shoes. With no shoes. It's a pretty dismal scenario. Yeah. So I'm going to read a quote from his book that I appreciated. It says, I'd always been one of those blokes ragging on people who found themselves lost in the desert, putting shit on them for being so stupid. Now I was one of those people. It's so easy to judge others when we hear these stories, but we really should not judge because who knows? what other people have gone through, right? I like how you address this. <laughs> like, and then I became that person. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. me, the like, idiot. Oh, here I am. Now I'm shooting myself in the foot. All after just being nice and picking someone up and giving them a rum and coke, and this is what you get. Yeah. So aside from thinking about what happened to his car and where the heck he was, he started to look for roads. He just started walking, and I'm guessing not very quickly, given the lack of footwear. And it's rocky, and it's dry and pokey. So his logic at the time was that he'd have to walk in order to be found because he was in the middle of nowhere. He stated that he initially had hope that this is going to be the first day I find a house, a road, or a car. Every day for the first few weeks in his mind was the day that he was going to be found. Since he wasn't having any luck finding anyone right off the bat, he decided it would be best to find a source of water and just camp there. He went one day without water in the hot sun and ultimately had to pee into his underpants and drink from them because he had no other means of collecting it. So he had to do that a couple days in a row. So he walked 10 days through the Tanami Desert, and apparently through this time he lost consciousness from heat exhaustion. His temperatures regularly reach around 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. It's amazing he didn't just die of heat exhaustion. Stretch, yeah. Mm -hmm. Without water, drinking his pee in the desert. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big thing. All the exposure. Yep. So, also, his feet were bloody from walking barefoot because he had nothing to protect his feet. Um, Initially, he was able to make a shelter after some out of some branches in a gully. I think this was the first night. And during the night, it started to rain, and it rained for at least an hour. So he was drinking as much as he could through the cracks in the shelter. And um, he was also surprised at how cold it was during the night, and his first shelter was not built very well. The next day, he had as much water as he could drink, and basically he's drinking out of mud puddles at this point. You got to do what you got to do. And then he was learning how to build better shelters for nighttime. So shortly thereafter, within the first week, he found a water source or a creek, and he started walking in it and swimming in it until he found this decrepit windmill, which was in a dam. And then he was able to get up into the windmill and see his surroundings a little bit better, but he didn't see any roads. And this area was riddled with mozzies, which are mosquitoes. Oh, cute (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't sound like these mozzies were very cute though and there were multiple varieties of these mozzies i just mean it's a cute way to refer to mosquitoes yeah 
I like it. Good job, Australia. You're adorable. (laughs) (laughs) So initially he slept in the windmill's elevated platform and he used the windmill blades, which were piled near the windmill, to build a humpy with dirt. And a humpy is an aboriginal bark hut or any rude shelter or hut. He was becoming weaker and weaker and this made foraging for food really difficult. He was eating grass at the windmill because there was little food. And when water was originally a problem, he had plenty of water there, but no food and no sign of recovery. He also had these wounds on his feet from walking over all the rocks. They wouldn't heal because there was so much water and his feet were constantly wet. After four days in this setting, he decided, I got to go or I'm not going to be found. He basically got back into the water and floated down the river. That seems like the smartest thing to do is keep with your water source. Yeah. So he was in the water, he said, for about four hours when he saw a track coming out of the water. And so he, he's thinking, I, I'm seeing signs of people. And, and that sign might lead me to, to people. people. <laughs> so he had to leave the water source. He had to make this leap of faith because at some point he's going to perish if he just stays out there. Here's the crux. Mm-hmm. So he's walking along this track, and six kilometers into the journey, he starts seeing some vegetation, and he found a fence with gates and a sign which read, Hedysbury Beef Country. Beef Country? Yep. Okay. Like cows? Mm-hmm. He found some muddy water to drink and some puddles, and I will never look at a mud puddle again after reading the story, because that was his prime source of fluid at times, was just drinking out of a puddle. So his feet were torn up, and this was the biggest obstacle that he faced at this point in the journey. What he ended up having to do was take his shirt, and he had to wrap his feet for protection. And the description of his feet and the injuries he sustained to them was almost unbearable to read. It was walk a bit, shake out the shirt, rewrap the shirt, get rocks unstuck from the shirt for rubbing his feet, stop and shake the shirt, He said, it's funny how your pain threshold stretches like that when you're faced with extreme situations. He was so hot during the day and very cold at night. And also at night, he was the meal of the mozzies because they just kept coming to find him no matter where he was. And when he was on this stretch, he had to sleep all rolled in grass and mud because there was nothing to build a shelter out of. And they were still eating him through all the grass and mud. And so luckily on the second day when he was on this property, it rained. So that was a good thing because he was running out of water. He was ambling along and he came to a crossing, Bori to the left and Wallamunga to the right. He chose to go to the right Wallamunga yards, which turned out to be a cattle yard. He went back to the intersection and made an SOS sign with an arrow in the direction that he was going. Oh, very cool. Smart. Yeah. He stuck his hand into a tree looking for some grubs and was bitten by a 20-centimeter long brush centipede. And then his arm began to immediately swell. Just can't catch a break. There's just so many critters in Australia. That's what I'd be worried about, especially without shoes. He actually ended up getting lost because he was in this state of panic and this emotional state, and he was wandering all over the place. And then finally he realized, like, now I lost my bearings and I don't even know where the track is that I was on to begin with. He says that he laid down to die and then he fell asleep and he woke to a rainstorm and realized that his arm felt better, but he had no idea where he was. He found some cow prints and cow pies and he followed them, thinking that they would lead him back to Bori. 
But soon after that, he actually found a dam brimming with water. So this is a much more optimistic thing to find because it's actually fresh water. At this place, he built a primitive mud hut with a door made of sticks and grass and attempts to keep out mosquitoes as best as he could, which it seems like no matter what he did or tried, he could not keep them from eating him at nighttime. I mean, there's got to be so much moisture and all this mud, and that's prime habitat for mozzies anyway. So that's rough. That, That would be horrible. It would be horrible. So he ate plants and crabs that he found in the dam and crickets and leeches. Ooh, ooh, I don't like that. It sounds like he actually enjoyed the leeches. After some time at the dam, he decided he'd better get a move on, otherwise he was never going to be found. So he left his water source again. And he wandered off, and he thought it was going to be impossible to survive, and like, why did I do this? And then he found another dam. And so this one was actually superior to the last one. It had a more abundant source of food and water. Hopefully still leeches. Yeah, I think there weren't as many leeches at the second one, but he found a feeding trough and he created another humpy and he turned it upside down and packed it with mud. So Tessa, I want you to look at that picture that I sent you of the humpy and just describe it to our listeners. Okay, so basically it's just a hole in the ground. And the one that you sent me, it has a crossover. I thought when you sent me this picture, it was of his shallow grave. (laughs) So it looks like a grave, I think partially just because of the cross. That's symbolic. He put that there after he was rescued. Oh. So at this location, Ricky initially had an abundance of food, which included plant food that he named, including bopples, which are native rosella, spriggy spriggies, which are succulent perennials, similar to beans, and morning glory, which are purple purple flowers, and some buffalo clover, to name a few. He also ate frogs and lizards, flies, praying mantises, caterpillars, wasps. He ate a few mosquitoes and then decided it wasn't worth his effort. Essentially, whatever he could get his hands on. Whatever he could get his hands on. So are some of those names that he came up with, or are they just official Australian terms, like Spriggy Spriggy? Is that... That, that, that was his own creation. <laughs> it really could have gone either way. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, as a side note, that Ricky's book was good and that he had clearly a good sense of humor, or does have a good sense of humor. So anyway, that was enjoyable. After a while, his food source does start to dwindle, and I would imagine that that had something to do with the rain season kind of coming to a close. And his weight steadily started dropping off, and it's harder and harder for him to go collect food. And then one morning, he awoke to swelling on the left side of his face. And at first, he thought that he was bitten by a spider or something. But over the next one to two days, he had increased swelling and pain. And after a little while, another morning, he woke up and he was unable to open his mouth at all. And he had to force it open, and he had to puncture his mouth with a star picket which is a steel fence post. Ugh. Basically, it's a, a star picket holds um, the wire or mesh from a fence post, so it's not sliding down. So mm-hmm. he'd found a few of these, and he was using them as tools. And so he was trying to poke at this abscess in his mouth Ugh. with this metal object, and it wasn't working. So then he ended up taking his keys from his pocket, and he sharpened them, and he poked it into his oh, abscess my. to drain everything out of it because he wasn't even able to open his mouth so he couldn't eat anything. So was this related to 
Like just being out in the elements or was it a tooth abscess? No, it was what? a tooth abscess. Oh, so just like really inconvenient timing for really, you really. have a tooth infection. Yeah. And the biggest thing is that he was already losing all this weight right. and then he couldn't eat anything. Yeah. And it was like, you know, you're on the brink of starvation and then you can't open your mouth. Yeah, that's crazy. But he ended up having to pull the tooth out of his mouth using a piece of wire and his key. Well, I hope he had a tetanus shot. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, But anyway, over the whole experience, he mentioned this as being the worst, the worst thing out of everything else that he experienced. I hear that from people all the time, that tooth pain is the worst. So for this guy to be out in the elements for all this time and then say that it's the worst part. Yeah. Take care of your teeth, guys. (laughs) Make sure to brush and floss. Yeah. Um, So anyway, this infection was almost fatal because, again, it took away his ability to eat. And he was already losing too much weight. And then he wasn't able to move around for a few days because his infection was so severe. Mm -hmm. Um, So then after he was able to drain it, he was able to eat again, but it was still pretty painful. Yeah. Well, at the point where your face is swelling up, the tooth infection is really bad. Mm -hmm. The swelling is like the last part. Anyway, terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And to the point where you're pulling your tooth out yourself. Oh, so bad. Desperation. That's the only word to describe that. That's like cutting off your arm because you're stuck in a canyon. I just feel like, well, I think I would have a hard time either way, honestly. Oh, yeah. It would be horrible. Removing any part of myself. I just, no. It's not ideal for sure. So around this time. With this series of events that Ricky faced, he began to prepare for death. Basically, he was thinking, is this going to be my last night, every single night? And his energy continued to dwindle. So going out to get food was really, really difficult and took a lot of energy. So one day, he's just lying in his humpy, waiting for death to come, and he hears an engine. And he couldn't believe it at first, but then he heard it again. So it piqued his interest. And he went to go see what was going on outside a shelter. And that's when he visualized a Land Cruiser and two young men inside. And these guys were named Taz and Bruce. He didn't believe his eyes, and they obviously didn't believe their eyes either. So they were station hands for Burin Dudu Station. And Burin Dudu Station is the home of Hattiesbury Cattle Company. And they have 1,663,513 acres. Dang. Yeah, just to give you a general idea of how big this area is. Just curious, but did he actually run into any cows during this entire time? He did see some cows intermittently, but they were not ever very interested in him. And I don't think he ever got close enough to one of them to make it a food source. (laughs) That's what I was wondering, because I feel like if you're desperate enough, you try to take down a cow. Yeah, I think he would have tried to if he'd had the opportunity, but it probably would have wasted a lot of energy. And you would need something to actually... A tool. Yeah. And he had no fire source either. He did mention that he used the the cattle trough, which he made his humpy out of, to cook food on the top of it. Or maybe this was one of his other other, um, shelters. One of the shelters he had, he was cooking food on the top of it because it was so hot it was metal well this one that you sent me it looks like there's a metal element to it it's mostly covered in dirt so uh-huh. that's probably it yep so anyway they put him in this land cruiser they basically had to carry him into it and they drove him to the homestead of the large cattle ranch and there he was allowed to be showered and there was um, a nurse there that was kind of taking care of him 
and they made him pumpkin soup and he slept in a real bed for the first time in 71 days that is crazy and he could not believe his reflection in the mirror it straight up terrified him so they flew him to a hospital um it was called the darwin hospital he had lost 60 kilograms or 132 pounds he started out at 100 kilograms or 220 pounds yeah that's insane which brings him in at a weight of like 90 pounds which is pretty hard to believe and at the hospital all he wanted to do was eat despite the doctors being concerned about his intake he just was eating and eating and eating whenever he could get his hands on food he was eating it well and you're not supposed to do that right just because your body can't handle the digestion anymore right after so much time that's what I hear anyway that's what they said but the thing is I guess he was really keeping his digestive system primed anyway because he was constantly eating basically anytime he saw something that was edible he was putting it in his mouth so that may have helped because he never really got sick he ended up stealing a microwave so he could warm food up throughout the course of the evening (laughs) because he was like like all he could think about was eating And he's like, well, I can cook things now, so it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So aside from being emaciated, he had surprisingly normal electrolytes and just mild liver enzyme abnormalities. And he did have an extensive fungal rash, and they thought that occurred because of a reduced immune function from malnutrition. He was released six days after he was admitted to the hospital because he really just wanted to eat chips and drink beer. He deserves it. <laughs> he also mentioned that he wanted milkshakes. So I would, and, and burgers, which that all seems like a fair thing to be indulging in. It's inspiring me right now. Yeah. And he ended up finding a roommate named Greg who he met through inter- an interview because Greg worked for a, a local paper. Shortly after he was released from the hospital, he actually had to have surgery on his ankle the bad ankle because he had a joint infection where he'd had a previous surgery. Mm -hmm. In any case, at that point, he was just flooded by all of these news and media people and the police and the police were pretty skeptical about the story. And part of it was because of his shady past. And again, he said that he hadn't had any run-ins with the law for eight years before he got stranded in the desert, but they still really didn't seem to be on his side. Um, They did eventually find his vehicle a few months after his rescue, and it was found where he told them it was going to be. In the mud. (laughs) Yeah, where where, where he thought it was, on a cattle station adjoining the one where he was found. It's crazy that it just sat there. Yeah. That really goes to show how many people go by there. Yeah, and my only thought is that whoever did the carjacking must have drove him to another location because... He was not where his vehicle was when he pulled himself out of the shallow grave. So his car windows were smashed, and his wallet and his two phones were missing, as well as his passport. So after all of the dust settles, Ricky and his friend Greg go to look for Ricky's last humpy out in the desert. So reading this portion of the book made me feel a little bit of anxiety, because they traveled out there in a Ford Falcon, which apparently doesn't have four-wheel drive, and they got stuck on the way out there. But thankfully, there were some guys doing field work out there that were able to pull them out. Yeah, so it could have been round two. Just wait. So they weren't able to drive past the station once they got there because they didn't have four-wheel drive. So they hiked all the way down to the dam, which ended up taking four hours. They had backpacks and water and food. 
but Ricky started having problems with his ankles. So then they ended up staying at the dam for the night um, in his humpy. They slept in it. And then the next day they walked another six kilometers to a water pump. And then they planned on going back to the vehicle. But Ricky twisted his ankle in a hole and he was unable to walk. Oh, my gosh. Then thankfully, the station manager who knew that they were out there sent a vehicle out to get him. And then on the way back, after they got the Ford Falcon, they were driving back to civilization and they hit a bull, which smashed in the front end of the vehicle, including the radiator. And so it continued to overheat and they had to add a little bit of water, a little bit of water. They could only go like, I don't know, 40 miles an hour or something like that. And then thankfully, a passerby was able to tow them. So basically, three different times on this outing to go see his final would have been resting place, he almost ended up stranded in the desert again. It's like final destination. You didn't die when you're supposed to, so we're going to take you in another way. (laughs) It was so painful to read that. It's like, oh my gosh, you're going to get stuck out there again. I would never go back. Yeah, I mean, I can see the the symbolism of it, and the kind yeah. of, I think he actually was recording for a documentary, mm-hmm. but still, I think I would want to go out there in an airplane, in yeah. a helicopter or something, and maybe with more than one other person, just in case. <laughs> just in case, yeah, have a couple backup plans going on there. So that sums up the story of Ricky McGee. Um, he was dumped in the desert, and he had to have a strong sense of confidence in being rescued to make it out alive. And he says it most pointedly at the end of the book. He says, I reckon my story demonstrates that you should never, ever give up, no matter how confronting the circumstances. I still don't know why I was dumped and left for dead or who exactly was involved. They're all mysteries that will probably always elude me, and I try not to reflect on them too much. It's too upsetting to dwell, and pondering the unknown doesn't change anything. Well, I think... Part of it was just sheer luck. Sheer luck, sure. But, I mean, he definitely did a lot of things to promote mm-hmm. his survival. Success. I mean, he was smart. Don't get me wrong. But just where he was and the elements. And then I was telling you this before, but I heard a story a couple of years ago about a guy who ate a gecko in Australia on a dare and died because a lot of small animals, I just looked it up. So it says a large number of animals in Australia carry salmonella in their gut so like snakes frogs and geckos and he was eating frogs out there yeah so i mean you're gonna eat whatever you can but even what you're eating can kill you yeah he's just a really lucky dude he was really lucky on all of those aspects but what i will say is that a lot of his survival i think came down to one thing and that is mindset and how many times do we fail almost it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but how many times do we fail because we don't have the right mindset and that's all it comes down to, you know? Well, and it'd be easy to really lay down and die at a lot of those points. Even on the first day. Yeah. You know? Anyway, hope you guys have a good week. Please help our podcast grow by sharing with your friends and by leaving reviews or suggestions and have some fun with us by posting one of your most treasured objects that you would bring if you knew you were going to be stuck in the desert in similar circumstances as Ricky McGee. And I mean, probably the most obvious one would be a water bottle. Yeah, so you don't have to drink your underwear pee. (laughs) Yeah, because if he had a water bottle, it would have been a game changer. He would have been able to transport water as he was walking over some of those dry patches. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Yeah, stay alive until next week. Tune in next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.